You're listening to the Entmoot Podcast, the podcast about the works of J.R.R. Tolkien and how they intersect with political philosophy. This is episode six, Making Tolkien a Neocon, part one, the first of a two-part series in which co-hosts Kenny and Sam discuss one of the few full-length books devoted entirely to the subject of Tolkien and politics, The Hobbit Party by Jonathan Witt and J.W. Richards. Welcome to the Entmoot Podcast. I'm your co-host, Kenny Tallarico. I'm here with my friend, Sam Lieberman. Sam, what's going on? Uh, Not a ton. I accidentally took a long mid-afternoon nap while I was supposed to be doing work, so not super stoked on that, but, you know, onwards and upwards, right, guys? Yes, indeed. Uh, Well, thanks for taking the time uh, to talk about a, a very important book with me today. This is are the first of our two-part series discussing The Hobbit Party by Jonathan Witt and J.W. Richards. Uh, as I said in my little introduction, it is um, one of very few full-length books devoted entirely to the subject of Tolkien and politics, and just judging by Amazon reviews and Goodreads reviews, it seems to be the most popular as well. Um, and so we're going to be talking about it, uh, split up over two different episodes because there's a lot to discuss here. I think, I think a sort of perfect place to start about this book is to sort of get into the, uh, the authors, uh, Jonathan Witt and J.W. Richards. So sort of off the bat, they are both, uh, conservatives and, and I would go so, uh, so far as to say not necessarily conservatives in the way that like Tolkien is a conservative or we or some of the other scholars and thinkers we talk about over the course of this podcast they are like conservatives in the way that like I don't know Tucker Tucker Carlson is a conservative yeah um, yeah just to sort of contextualize their views yeah they're, they um, are very much within the like contemporary American conservative tradition uh like their tweet, their I think a great place to sort of intro you to them is to just like read part of their twitters. Yeah, uh, yeah. They they read like live feeds of like some combo of like Roger slash any slash like Ben Shapiro. Like you get the gist. Ted Cruz. It's it, they got it all. It's not an exaggeration to say maybe like eighty to ninety percent of what Jay Richards tweets is about how the libs are indoctrinating our children with uh, transgender ideology. So so his most recent tweet is, happened up the end of the Columbus Day Parade in New York City yesterday. Didn't see anything representing Italian culture. <laughs> the defining characteristic of Jay Richards' ideology in particular, Jay Richards also has significantly more followers than Jonathan Witt, and he uh, clearly is more addicted to posting on Twitter than yeah, he Jonathan has like Witt. 20K followers. So, so Jay Richards, I think, is uh, he is he's a better place to look at his Twitter, and I think he uh, his obsession is like a lot of other conservatives, like on what he sees as like the the downfall and degradation of of society and societal norms, and like he grafts that onto Tolkien in a way, some ways that like Tolkien probably would have agreed with, but most of the time in ways that Sam and I don't think that he would have. Uh, uh- but I think a pretty remarkable example of this is I forget the exact page, Kenny, you might have it, but he basically is like, oh, it's something about how 
like the Oxford University of like the 1950s oh, yeah, yeah, was controlled early. by like the woke left. How it was like anti-traditionalist. Yeah, yeah. Oxford of just, the 1950s. Yeah, the all-male Oxford University of the yes. 1950s. Yes, exactly. Where you probably would have been like drawn and quartered if you didn't wear like a suit, a full suit. Yeah, no, 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 not just a full suit. Like the type of suit you wore. Right, exactly. You know? Like exactly. how many colors there were in the suit was a big deal. But I just want to say again, like J.W. Richards a few days ago was retweeting an interview of Alan Dershowitz on Newsmax. Just <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even see that. Like yeah. he tweets, he tweets so much that it's it's like not possible to see all of it. Yeah, he also like re, re, you know tweeted out an American conservative article about how like Georgia Maloney, the new like neo fascist president of Italy or head of state of Italy, is like based. Um, you get the you get the idea. I will say one thing. He does have a tweet, like, disagreeing with one Adrian Vermeule. Um, and I think a key difference is that Jay Richards and Jonathan Witt, and for all intents and purposes, they have the exact same worldview, um, haven't leapt onto the sort of, like, full national conservative um, thing where they're okay with some interventions into the market and some pro-labor stuff. Uh, they are, like, still, like, orthodox free marketeers. And, and you know, it is, there's an interesting crossover there because, like, you would think most of the people that are real serious orthodox free marketeers are not also, like, intense uh, Christians, and in their case, Catholics. Well, I, I actually – I think that wasn't the case – 25 years ago. I think that's more so the case now what you're saying is true. Yes, I think but I think the reason it wasn't the case 25 years ago is because the orthodox free marketeers was much more of the mainstream of like the Republican Party. True. Whereas n- now the sort of national conservative idea of like no, it, actually we like the state and we want to use the state for uh the imposition of, you know, our morality and stuff. It's interesting that like I don't know that Jay Richards would advocate the view of like you know, they're, uh, like, uh, he's so obsessed with the transgender stuff that I don't know if he would advocate the view of, like, uh, the state shouldn't be involved in that at all and that, like, that should be between, you know, people and their doctors. I guess same thing with abortion. I doubt he would say that. Oh, no, he, we know that he wouldn't. Yeah, so, so it's... Because he, he gives, is he... He tweets out his takes on Twitter.com. Yeah, I, constantly. I, I think that, so I, I think he's probably closer to that national conservative view maybe yeah but like either way they they are they pay more lip service to like the you know the great powers of the free market than than uh you know people like i don't know blake masters or or adrian vermule yes you know these other sort of figures that are in this in this universe just to like overview their actual jobs so jw richards um has been working at the discovery institute for decades as is Jonathan Witt, that is a, as far as I know, one of the biggest intelligent design think tanks. In case any of you guys don't know, that's basically just like creationism. Yeah, which I um, didn't even know until yesterday when Sam pointed this out to me. There, there's so much going on in their universes that is so interesting. <laughs> just so Jonathan Witt's Twitter, and he's less of an avid poster, but he does still post quite a bit. Um, is a lot. He has a lot more stuff on there about like Darwin was bad. Which is a very sort of like 2009 conservatism, yeah, uh, bender to go on. Yeah, and I, I've seen, I've seen he also does a lot of the like 
Well, you know, uh, the early progressives were Darwinists. Darwin is eugenics. Uh, Dar- early Darwinists were racist, which is, you know, mostly true, unfortunately. Um, that does not mean that evolution is wrong. Yeah, right. Like, it is true that, like, social Darwinism, as you might call it, is bad. And, like, the, yes. a lot of the sort of progressives and of the, you know, 1890s to, like, 1910s, yeah, they they were they did get pretty obsessed with Darwinism, and uh, it did make them pretty racist. So, like that is true. But then that's used to be like, and also that's also what Bernie Sanders is. So so explain explain that libs. Yeah, and then another. So just to, to quickly go through Jay Richards, he is also um, a senior research fellow at the uh, DeVos Center, uh, the Heritage Foundation, which, as you might imagine, is named for the DeVos family of Betsy DeVos fame, as well as a. Um, fellow uh, at uh, the Daily Signal. I don't know what that is, but it looks to be a right-wing um, uh, publication. And um, ca- he, he teaches some classes at Catholic University. He also has a PhD in philosophy from uh, Princeton, which is not apparent when you read his book. Um, and I'm not saying this because I disagree with him. I'm saying this because... Uh, <laughs> it's not well-written. It's it's poorly written and the philosophical concepts are are poorly discussed. Uh, for for those who don't know, the the Heritage Foundation is uh, is one of the is is one of the premier like right wing think tanks. Basically, I should also say that just you know just to get it in there, they do have. I think me and Kenny disagree with most of what they they do. They do have some serious people working there who do actual research. And you know what, Jonathan Witt and Jay Richards may very well also be pretty smart. Uh, I think they would benefit from having a better editor. I don't think we're going to get underemphasize just how much of this book is like not really, not really about Lord of the Rings or Tolkien at all, but they, they just sort of use it as a jumping off point. Like, like Kenny, I, I would love for you to, to, to discuss one of these examples. I mean, there's so many. Your choice. They have a real bee in their bonnet about how uh, fertility rates are declining and that we need to we need to be embracing human fertility more. Which, like, again, not an insane opinion. There's a lot of smart people who agree with it, but the way that they articulate this is just so funny. It, it's hilarious. And, and yeah, like, honestly, the, the idea that, like, having higher fertility rates is good is, is not even necessarily one that, that I disagree with. Like, yeah. Um, but I mean, it's also, of course, it's often in the case of this or in the case of like, you know, when people like Jay Richards, that's what I was just about to say. When people like Jay Richards and Jonathan Witt are talking about fertility rates, what they really mean is like the people in Africa are their populations growing faster than the West, as they would say. And that's bad because the (laughs) West is better. (laughs) Yeah. Like they're not, they're not, their, their principal concern isn't like human capital or like, or like social security, social security solvency, even though that's a fake issue. Um, yes, <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> it's it seems to mostly just be thinly coated racism. But I honestly, guess. not even coated. It's just yeah. racism. Yeah, it's <laughs> just they racism. literally say like you know we need to preserve the West. Um, okay, so uh, so let's uh, let's just start here on uh, on the, on the very first chapter of the book. So the structure that they do here is that their first chapter is is about uh, Tolkien and his politics, essentially, loosely. Um, chapters two and three are about The Hobbit. 
and then chapters four through nine, I think, are about Lord of the Rings. And then there's a then there's an epilogue. You know, that's the other thing though is that the, it has you know nine chapters and an epilogue. It's under two hundred pages, and it goes on for about a hundred fifty pages too long. Uh, it reads like they are trying to get like a word count. Like it, it reads like they were assigned this for a class, and there was a word minimum they had to get. To. Yeah, and it's like it really comes out in the number of tangential rants that they go on that are that are just like. It's that are clearly like, you know what would be cool? If we put in four pages about Walmart, which is a real thing that happens. <laughs> so, okay. So let's talk first about chapter one, which, I mean, right off the bat, you're in with one of the great chapter titles of all time. Uh, chapter one is titled, In a Hole in the Ground, There Lived an Enemy of Big Government. <laughs> um, so let me read this paragraph right here. So... Tolkien was a conservative Catholic in 20th century Britain, and you have the makings of a thinker far out of step with the rank-and-file intellectuals of his time and ours. The intellectual establishment of his day hated God and loved Big Brother. Tolkien which, is, loved, which is also just, like, not the case. Like, the it's, intellectual it's so establishment wrong. of Oxford and Cambridge in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s did not hate God and love Big Brother. After that, they say Tolkien loved God and hated Big Brother. (laughs) Unlike the many self-appointed radicals in lockstep with the spirit of the age, he was the true radical, the round peg in the square hole of modernity. So here is what Richards and Witt miss writ large. I'm going to spoil the lead here. But what they miss is that, yeah, Tolkien was a conservative, but Tolkien was a conservative, like, as they might have existed in, like, the 1700s like yes he was already out of step with the conservatives of 1930s britain yeah like in his letters he makes fun of churchill and uh and anthony eden like a bunch like he did not like the tories of course he didn't like labor either but he didn't he didn't like the tories he was not like a you know he was not a conservative in the way that Richards and Witt are conservatives like tolkien would i mean this is pithy but tolkien would not have watched fox news Yes, no. I, and I think that, you know, Hren does a really good job at this. And, and I hope maybe like our, our distributivism episode does also. Tolkien was like a, a Catholic, like sort of distributivist, like feudalist almost. Like he was yes. not like, you know, he he was not cool with like fucking liberal democracy or even like market economics. No, Which is no. why it's so funny that they have all this shit about how he's a capitalist. Which he just was not. That's the key point, is that uh, this book is about how Tolkien loved market market economies. And, like, it is, you know, it's hard to emphasize enough, like, how much the tradition that Tolkien falls into, which is to say, like, the sort of pre-Enlightenment Catholic social teaching tradition, is anti-capitalist. Because they are, like, feudalists and monarchists, basically. Like... And that's, and that's uh, you know, saying he's a monarchist or a feudalist, I don't even mean that necessarily in, like, a derogatory way. And I don't think he was a feudalist really either, but, like— He the, wasn't really. The, the idea, though, is, like, the belief—and we've talked about this in several other episodes, like you said, namely the distributism and the—in um, our first episode on, on, on Tolkien's life. But um, it's, you know, the idea that everyone has a place in life— that sort of thing, and it's that's it's it's a it's a divinely ordained order, basically. It's sort of a you know 
uh, divinely ordained class structure, essentially. That is that is something that I think um, kind of holds with conservative ideologies writ large, like through time. But the way that that manifests for like you know conservatives in the 1700s and 1800s is to be basically anti-capitalist because capitalism is is the is the great force that's revolutionizing everything capitalism is itself a a revolutionary force conservatives then are interested in in the preservation of uh of the you know the pre-capitalist virtues right of of being and that's also where the the pastoralism comes from with tolkien right is that he, he loves the land and you know i mean no matter what Witt and Richard say and think, like his view was that industrialization, which is obviously a product of capitalism, is the is the great scourge of, of, of the earth. <laughs> like he would not have loved Walmart. In fact, I am confident he would have fucking hated Walmart. That like that I've never been more confident of something that like yeah he would have hated Walmart. Like I wasn't exaggerating. There's like five pages where Witt and Richards talk about how efficient Walmart is. And how good it is. Like, like that's somehow related to... And, like, when we get there in the course of going through the book, it, it, it won't make more sense. I also just want to, like, address... Like, earlier when I said that it reads like they're trying to hit a word count, this is a sentence from page 19. Oh, no. I, Sam, I have a better example of that. Um, on, page, on page 21, oh when, they're talking, when, they're, <laughs> when they're talking about Tolkien, they say... He developed close friendships with leading intellectual figures such as C.S. Lewis and distinguished himself as a renowned philologist, becoming familiar with Latin, Greek, French, German, Italian, Spanish, Old and Middle English, Finnish, Gothic, Old Norse, Modern Welsh, Medieval Welsh, Dutch, Danish, Norwegian, Icelandic, Lithuanian, Russian, Swedish, Lombardic, Middle Dutch, Middle High German, Middle Low German, Old High German, and Old Slavonic, and with them many truths about the sources of Western civilization that were in danger of being lost. Like, if I had written that sentence on, like, a freshman year of college essay, let alone, like, honestly, high school, um, I, I'm fairly confident that the professor or instructor or teacher would have been like, this is needlessly wordy. Oh, my God. And, and like, again, this is the thing that, like, I mean, they are right in the way that he knowing a lot about old languages meant that he also knew a lot about old laws fading aspects of western civilization but those aspects and he's clear about this in his letters were like already fading like decades centuries prior to any like new wave of migration like oh yeah he identifies the fucking norman conquest as like the beginning of the end for, yeah right for right the exactly. civilization he's invested in on page 27 starts their their first uh you know extended tirade and this one is about zoning laws specifically where wit lives in grand outside of grand rapids michigan he he starts talking about how you know he's permitted to own a horse but he's not permitted to own above a certain number of cows and uh, which is a fair gripe you know we all have our problems with zoning laws myself Included, you know, abolish zoning, so on and so forth. But this just has nothing related. <laughs> I genu- I generally, you know, agree with this point in isolation, right? I, I also just want to say, when he says 
ironic, like sarcastically, hooray for locally grown food, hooray for sustainable lifestyles, referencing how like he can't have as many hens as he wants or whatever fucking shit. And then he cites <laughs> Michael Pollan. Um, it's like, if anyone is familiar with Rod Dreher's book about um, sort of like hippie conservative Christians, it's like very much that vibe. Um also, I guarantee that with their fucking rants about zoning, these guys are definitely the biggest nimbies in the world. Oh like my if, god! If, the, if anywhere they lived wanted to like develop an affordable housing unit or just like any housing near where they lived, they would, I guarantee you, immediately be at the town council, like town meeting, <laughs> complaining about like crime rates or some shit. Which it bears mentioning, of course, that affordable housing has no correlation with uh, crime rates. But I digress. Their, their hatred of zoning laws is not zoning laws writ zoning laws. They probably love, like, you, you know, certain certain zoning restrictions that you and I do not. Uh, they What they don't like is that uh, that the government tells them how many cows they can have, which, fair enough. I don't think that the government should be telling them that. <laughs> but, like... Well, maybe. I don't even know enough about the details of this situation or why such rules might exist. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, maybe there's a good reason for it, but... Nonetheless, this is, you know, if you think that this is completely unrelated to to Tolkien, you're correct. Um, And so also uh, here's a Jay takes a quick shot at the libs, too, um, when he says uh, that near Seattle, we could have up to eight hens on our property, though we didn't really want any. In all likelihood, this liberated zoning rule has to do with the eccentricity of the Northwest rather than a love for freedom, since Seattleites happily hyper-regulate all sorts of other activities and would promptly execute a neighbor they caught failing to recycle. Like, can you imagine Tolkien reading this book? Uh, No, because he would not, like, three pages in, he would stop. All right. Well, you know, we could stay on this forever. Basically, that first chapter in, the, in a hole in the ground lived an enemy of big government. That's about Tolkien and about how somehow Tolkien's guiding principle was being an enemy of big government. And like, that's what comes out in all of his work. Yeah. Like he didn't like big government, but that's because Tolkien didn't like modernity. Yeah. <laughs> like that is really he what it is. He also did not is Tolkien like is... big corporations like Walmart. Yes. he like, like equally as much as he didn't like big government. Like that's the thing that I'm going to keep coming back to. And that's just the fundamental thing that they get wrong in this book is that Tolkien was anti-modern. Like capitalism is the project of modernity. Like, you know, they're synonymous and socialism as well. Like those are both the two great projects of modernity. Socialism arising as a reaction to capitalism, essentially. Yeah. Like it's, it can't be emphasized enough that like, like the distributists, which Sam and I, I think, place Tolkien, if not as one of, then adjacent to. Tolkien, I think, is is equally repulsed by, like, the type of capitalism that, that they espouse, that, as well as the, uh, you know, the socialism, or honestly, like, uh, I would imagine Tolkien was not a fan of, uh, you know... Uh, Atlee's labor government. Yes. Uh, I don't, I can't, I, I actually can't find anything in particular in his letters where he mentions, like, that's the, well, that's the other thing is that he kind of didn't really, like, did, he wasn't involved in politics at all. And then, you know, get carrying on, on the second chapter, they, they, like, come so close to getting what, like, basic history when they say, so at the outset of the novel, we have a pastoral village with no banks or bankers, no stock markets or stockbrokers, no heavy industry or titans of heavy industry, and at the center of it, a middle-aged country gentleman in seemingly permanent retirement. 
One could almost say that the only notable thing the opening scene has in common with capitalism is the Shire's remarkable degree of political and economic freedom. And the chapter there. And then they say, one could say this, but it would be a mistake. You see, and then they just go on about how, like, oh, like, Thor and Oakenshield and company is like a modern corporation and, and modern contract law, which, uh, again, shouting out the Hren book, he has a great discussion of, like, the type of, like, pre-modern gift economy contract, which the, the, the Hobbit in particular is sort of based on, um, which handles all of this very well. Um, yes, it does. Hren's chapter that actually is is directly in response to some of the arguments Witt and Richards make. Is, yeah, is, he it, tears it, them apart. He he does. It's excellent. Um, but uh, like yeah. Th- so this chapter, chapter two, is called Adventure Inc. And their argument, which I, I can't emphasize enough, th- how wrong Sam and I think it is, is basically that uh, the the company of dwarves. With with Bilbo and and Gandalf accompanying them to you know on their quest that that is essentially um, proof that Tolkien was in favor of uh, what conservatives for the last over a hundred years in the American tradition have obsessed over, which is uh, the right to form contracts. <laughs> and you know that is if you're familiar at all with. Um, like the history of uh, the Supreme Court, and particularly the Lochner era in the early 1900s, the uh, the so-called right to 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 form contracts and to to freely sign make contracts was the basis in the first couple decades of the 20th century for, among other things, the Supreme Court striking down child labor laws. Uh, and the Lo- FDR ends the Lochner era by being president for a hundred years and appointing like every justice, replacing them all with his appointees. But the Lochner era, that is where like a lot of this comes from. Which you know, keep in mind, Tolkien is is contemporary with that period of like the extreme like laissez-faire period in the U.S. and. Uh, you know, you don't you don't see much in his letters about how good he thinks the U.S. is. <laughs> like he often kind of shits on the U.S. for you know being like a bunch of dummies. You know, the idea again, the idea that Tolkien was some zealot who was obsessed with like the right to form contracts and these like inherently modernist understandings of of the way that society ought to be organized. It's just so wrong, and it's so um, it's it's so shamefully like grafting like their particular brand of very 21st century American conservatism onto Tolkien. And it's, it's, it, I mean, it, it, like this chapter is offensive, how wrong it is. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, a big focus of chapter two, oh, they keep talking about how, uh, how Bilbo treats all of the dwarves with hospitality and with like proper manners. And when they come to bag end unexpectedly and that, that is uh, the downfall of Western society that we no longer have good manners. Um, and so on on page 37 also they, they correlate basically having good manners and being like courteous with uh, economic development, specifically punctuality and being on time for things. Here on page 39, they say, punctuality is a cultural feature highly correlated with economic development. It's partly a proxy for things like the presence of accurate clocks and functional roads, but also for a 
a due commitment to precision and respect for other people's time. And then here's a, a true banger of a sentence. Development economists have found that if a culture's members cannot be bothered to show up at something when and where they say they will, that culture rarely pulls itself out of extreme poverty. Okay, first of all, shut the fuck up. Like, these two guys, like, come on. Like, that was one of the worst sentences in this book. And then I, I looked at their citation, too, and it's the, the citation was, like, one econo- like one economist guy, and they say in their citation, he lists punctuality as one of several factors that contribute to economic development or something. Whereas, like, the way that they say it is, you know, if you can't be bothered to show up for things, then how are you going to pull yourself out of extreme poverty? It's just fucking annoying. It's just like, annoying, and, like, who cares? That's, like, what it is. It really is, like, who cares? Yeah, like, shut the fuck up. Yeah. It reads, <laughs> like, it really, it reads, like, and it, the book is from 2014, so this makes sense, but it reads, like, a Steven Crowder or Ben Shapiro bit from, like, the Obama era. Yeah, which, I mean, like, they're def- they were definitely, like, on that grind set in 2014, for sure. The, the oh, yeah. You know, Shapiro, Crowder, um... Which they definitely are still on that. Yeah, grind they, they set. still are. Except, you know, one thing that I think is crucial to understand is that they are their beliefs are distinct from most others, like in their sort of extended universe, because of also how Catholic they both are, and yes. that, that their, their their particular brand of Catholicism has a big impact on uh, on their particular brand of conservatism or neoconservatism uh, there's oh my god there's i'm just flipping back to this chapter there's so many gems hippies are mostly a thing of the past and yet much of their outlook has made its way into the wider culture like hippies and unlike mr baggins one takes a gen- rh takes a generally dim view of customs formality and quote-unquote good breeding this is how they get into their uh, long-winded rant about how modern society isn't formal enough yeah um and we need to make it, and like, oh my God, they begin, they begin this in Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, yeah, because they talk about, uh, they talk about <laughs> Abraham uh, sheltering the 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 people, the three people who are being uh, persecuted by the the Canaanites. Yeah, yeah, and they literally say like, well, that wouldn't happen in our in our time, so no one would do that. You know, I wanna I wanna get forward a little to something that's a little bit more. I mean, it's always fun to just, like, make fun of these these dumb takes. And this really is also... A, this book is really a collection of takes. Yes, yes. I want to get into one of their one of their, their big points of the book, which is um, Tolkien's work represents, like, the ideal form of capitalism to them. In that, like, they write, essentially, that... Um, the things that Marxists always criticize are not just Marxists, but like, you know, like people on the center left or the left in general criticize about capitalism, which, as they correctly point out, is a, a term that is was originally derogatory and it comes from Marx, is that you can't have it without having greed as the as the central driving factor. And that greed is the is the the, the fuel that you put in the in the engine of entrepreneurship or whatever you want to call it, right? That that without the desire to uh, to make money and to uh, for most for a lot of people to to sort of dominate, that uh, you don't you you can't have a a successful 
um, capitalist system, basically. And so they somehow just say, no, that's wrong. Actually, greed uh, doesn't have to be important. Uh, that's in that's because we say that. Like, that's the... Which is, like, notably, like, antithetical to, like, Hayek. Or, like, Milton Friedman. Or, like, any pro-capitalist scholar of capitalism who argues that the greed mechanism net benefits society. Right. They, like, are like, oh, no, it just doesn't exist at all. Like, that's the thing, is that, like, Milton Friedman and Hayek, they have internally consistent ideologies. They do. And these guys don't and that's because they're doing this like sleight of hand and it's so obvious where they're saying no actually uh greed you don't have to have greed to have a good capitalist economy and of course the reason they're saying that is because one of like the central components of catholicism and christianity is that greed is bad and generosity is good like (laughs) like it's so obvious that it's like yeah that you you can't really say like i ground everything that i'm talking about in catholic social teaching and be like a full you know milton friedman stan what they're doing is honestly worse which is like coming to all the same conclusions as friedman even even comparing them to someone like milton friedman just feels wrong because like for how wrong he was and you know like instrumental in doing coups in latin america and stuff like the guy was like interesting and smart yeah, um. yeah, yes, and and you know, it's I I do place a lot of importance on like having a consistent worldview, like Milton Friedman. Is. He, I mean, he didn't have a PhD in philosophy like from uh, an Ivy League institution like Jay Richards did, you know. So he he could how could he possibly conceive of these philosophical That's concepts? True. The way That's that, true. That's true. They're so as- the way that Jay Richards can. They're just so ascended. That it's like, yeah, of course, our little tiny pea brains wouldn't be able to understand these takes. They're just, yeah. you know. Um, okay, so, so, but on that point, uh, here, this is on page 44. This is where you get your first inkling of this idea that capitalism is good and you don't need to have greed for capitalism. And that capitalism is uh, actually, it's, that is a synonym for them of having, like, a good work ethic and of, like, entrepreneurship and like that the the hoarding of wealth or which is inherent in a capitalist system is uh is just something that they do they don't address because it doesn't work with you know their uh their worldview that is just a thing that's convenient to ignore they're talking here about the the three trolls that um that bilbo happens upon which i forgot that their names are uh william bert and tom Basically, they are th- their grand argument in this whole chapter is that Bilbo is the the quintessential member of the of the bourgeoisie, and that's good, and that is because the bourgeoisie is what uh, replaces the old aristocracy of uh, of Europe, and that which you know in a lot of ways is is right. Yeah, I I, I do want to quickly say that like the interpretation of of, of you know, again, to shout out Joshua Hren's Middle Earth and the Return of the Common Good, I think he does a pretty good job discussing how Bilbo is sort of emblematic of the early bourgeoisie. Yeah, yeah, no, I think I think that they're they're essentially right there. The but it's it, it really stops there because so they're talking here about William Burt and Tom, and they they have this to say. William, Bert, and Tom aren't interested in an honest day's work, even if one were offered them with good pay. They create nothing, build nothing, trade nothing for nothing. They are only interested in stealing, killing, eating, and, perhaps when full enough and bored enough, 
stashing away the leftover spoils. Such fellows are the opposite of the conscientious Mr. Baggins or the enterprising dwarves. And to dip into the economic history of the real world for a moment are very different from the thrifty craftsmen and merchant classes of the Middle Ages and Renaissance. These were the bourgeois who worked their way up from poverty and created the middle class Tolkien was born into who, for all of their flaws, had an almost overdeveloped commitment to the rule of law and property rights. Like, like them basically making the same argument about the trolls that, uh, that you would hear about, like, what they would call, like, welfare mothers or something. Yeah. Is, uh, that is something to behold. It (laughs) really is. Like, a politics that in America starts around the New Deal, really, in a lot of ways, of, like, everyone just wants, I mean, the idea that everyone wants something for nothing goes obviously before that but like the whole idea that like some of these people they don't want to work and you're just uh, you're just enabling it by giving them money from the government and uh you know there's like they're making that argument but about and i can't emphasize this enough the three trolls that bilbo baggins meets on on the way to the lonely mountain um that they are uh unproductive members of society like that's their first that's their that's the first thing that you need to know about these trolls they go on another tirade about all the bad stuff uh, that the uh, they put in quotes progressive 20th century brought. Because, of course, for, for them and for a lot of conservatives, um, the – oh, and this is actually a good way to contrast wh- how they think with how Tolkien actually thinks. For them, the great tragedy of, uh, of human history is uh, the liberalism of the 20th century. Yeah. Essentially, the, the invention of the, of the modern administrative state is the great – the great downfall of, of the great project of humanity, basically. Whereas for Tolkien, the great tragedy uh, is in, like, the ninth century. <laughs> also, also <laughs> I, I just want to read another particularly rich quote. And this is when they're discussing the goblins. Um, but Tolkien, in politically incorrect fashion, shut the fuck up, for starters. Like, yeah. <laughs> What are you saying? So first off, they're wrong that he's that he's being politically incorrect. B, like the concept of pol- if you tried to explain the concept of like PC culture to J.R.R. Tolkien, I'm convinced that he would like hit you in the face with his pipe. Like, but Tolkien, in politically incorrect fashion, bundles the mechanical villainy of the goblins with the vices you might find excoriated in late 19th century boys' novels. Goblins are untidy and dirty, despising the orderly and prosperous, delighting in not working with their hands more than they could help. It's just one more instance of Tolkien's shameless support for the opposite characteristics. Hard work, cleanliness, orderliness, and the like. Yeah, saying that you think hard work, being clean, and being orderly is good (laughs) is so fucking politically incorrect. (laughs) Yeah, I know. That's so, that's such a controversial take, that being clean (laughs) is... And that goblins are gross and weird. Like, oh my god. Also, also, uh, it is also worth saying that uh, I think Bilbo's a hell of a lot lazier than the goblins. Oh yeah, without a doubt. Bilbo, does, Bilbo sits on his ass for, like, m- the vast majority of his life doing nothing. Yeah, exactly. He's also like, a king. I, I love Bilbo. Yeah, but. no, Bilbo's a chad. We all know that. But, like, the the orcs and, and the goblins, the trolls are genuinely slothful. They might have, a, like, this tiniest morsel of a point there. But, like, with the orcs and goblins, yeah, they're gross. They also, all they do is work. <laughs> yeah. Like, all they that's all they do. 
You know? Like, most of the villains in the Legendarium, like, like most of, like, the foot infantry of the bad guys are, like, effectively slaves. Yes, um, yes. It's like, sla- it's like slave labor. Like, for anyone who's seen the Lord of the Rings films, when you get the shots of, like, all of the orcs and, like, Uruk High, like, just, like, mining away, like, in ha- getting, like, fucking tar lung. Um, <laughs> like, that's the vibes... <laughs> That's the vibes you're supposed to associate the bad guys with, not being lazy. Yeah, ex- ex- tar lung, exactly. Um, <laughs> Black lung, uh, uh, I think, is the actual name of the thing. Oh, I thought you were making a joke because, like, the the urukai are like born out of the tar. Oh, that's funny. No, I wasn't making that joke. But that's a good one. <laughs> well, let's let's finish up the discussion of of the Hobbit here, and then we'll we'll call this an episode, and we'll we'll get back to this on our on our next our next uh, chat, but the, uh, so the, the next chapter, chapter three is called the lonely mountain versus the market, which again, all of these, all of these chapter titles, I mean, like, you know, you can have, I'm sure all of our episode titles are not like, Oh wow. That's such a good turn of phrase, but these chapter titles are so lame. So one of the great arguments of this chapter is an obvious interpretation of the dynamic between smog and Bilbo is that, like, if you're going to make a political interpretation of it at all, is that Smog is like a, uh, he's, he's a hoarder of wealth. He's, you know, he's greedy. And, y- you know, the, the stereotype of that is very clearly like the stereotype of, you know, the, the, uh, the Baron, you know, of, of the, the Barons of modern society, which are, you know, the owners of great companies or corporations or whoever, or, you know, I mean, you can also say the same thing about certain people in the government of like the USSR or something, right? It's, it's the people who are at the top of society regardless. And clearly in capitalist societies, that's the owner, you know, the, whoever has capital. And, um, and so, so like that is the obvious interpretation if you're going to make an interpretation like that at all. Whereas, so they say, no, actually smog, they literally say on page 56 that smog is actually an anti-capitalist. And the reason that he's an anti-capitalist, I shit you not, is that he is not investing his gold. <laughs> it reads like uh, the best way I could describe this book. I'm actually going to revise my earlier statements. It's just like a bad Reddit post. It's like, <laughs> like Reddit brain bullshit where they're like, oh, like smog the dragon is like not a real investor. Like, it's idle money. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, okay. So, so, and, right, it's idle money. And so, so they here make a similar argument to the one we were talking about earlier about how, uh, about how, tr- actually, no, true capitalism is and is antithetical to, uh, to greed and to uh, selfishness. Where it's like, okay, first of all, like, that's, that's just objectively wrong. Uh, and like the people, the great capitalist thinkers, like we were saying, like Friedman would say, no, it's not the, the reason capitalism works is because greed and that's good. And you know, fair enough. Yeah. I mean, like there's like an entire, like smog's like basically just like a landlord. Right. I mean, he's just like someone who like has money by virtue of owning a large productive area of land with a lot of fucking like gold in it. And he just sits on it and has money by virtue of that. Like he's just like a he's just like a large landlord. Like it's yeah right. And and so you know where it comes from here is that they make the argument Smog is an anti capitalist, and he Smog is actually much more reminiscent of the pre Enlightenment aristocracy, and Tolkien, or, excuse me, and Bilbo is as the sort of you know 
Bilbo represents the the bourgeois conqueror of the aristocracy, which is also not an insane take. I think where we would probably differ from uh, Wit and Richards is a that they just put all of this so poorly, and b that like you know. Yeah, he's clearly modeled off sort of... I, I do think he is sort of modeled off the old aristocracy, but there's also a lot of people like that today. Right. That's the thing is that they, you know, for, for, for these two, like the... Uh, the there, there is no similarities between, uh, between like pre-enlightenment aristocrats and like, you know, modern... Uh, Fail sons. Um, right. And I mean, whereas they're functionally exactly the same. What it really comes down to... Is that they have a a a precon? I mean, and this is you know this is true of true of most of us, and this is not unique to them. But they're coming into this with a uh, a predetermined view, which is that uh, anything good you can explain using market thinking, basically, and anything bad is comes from a subversion to the market. And um, uh, you know, put put simply. And so here, y- you know, the they come into it already with the notion, no, if you have a lot of money, that's because you earned that money. Therefore, s- therefore, Smaug can't represent a modern capitalist because it's clear in the name, in the, in the way that the story is presented that Smaug did not, uh, you know, by right earn that money. So therefore, he can't be a capitalist, so he must be an anti-capitalist because he didn't earn the money. And stealing is bad. And, like, that that's essentially, like, I think the train of thought there, right? And it, it, it comes, it, it, it's, it's you know, making up an argument to arrive at the conclusion that they already had, which is the, you know, the opposite of the obvious conclusion, which is that, uh, is that Tolkien clearly is trying to portray Smaug. And it's not, this is not a Marxist interpretation, I want to be clear. Because it's, it's definitely also doesn't fit in that tradition either. But it's the... The argument that's like, no, Smog is, uh, you know, he's an exploiter who's hoarding wealth. And whether that's a, you know, a robber baron or uh, an old aristocrat, they, Wit and Richard seem to think, again, if you have money, you earned it. And that's the end of it, right? It, it's hard because, again, they're like, especially in this section, they're not completely wrong about everything. They're just, again, it just reads like a Reddit post. Like, or like a bad Twitter thread. Like, Kenny put it really, you put it really well earlier, like... This isn't like a developed argument so much as just like a series of takes. Yeah. The other the other thing that I, I keep thinking is like what yeah, I agree with you that like they say a lot of stuff in this chapter that is like historically correct, although, you know, clearly with sort of a conservative free market zealot spin on it, but you know, that's okay. What it what it really comes down to is that they're working off of a flawed premise, which is that like their premise is that is that Smaug cannot represent anything in the capitalist system, in a true capitalist system, because that can't exist in a true capitalist system, which I think is, that's a wrong, the, the premise is incorrect. And so the arguments that they're developing from that, even if the arguments are reasonably, you know, argued, which in some cases I think they are, uh, you you don't get a, you don't get a correct outcome there. Uh, the premise is is flawed and wrong. Yeah, and I think with that, we can conclude this episode um, of the first half of The Hobbit Party. Um, it, catch us in two weeks for a discussion of the second portion of the book. <sighs>
God help us. Yeah, and, and the second portion is just even more rich. That's how Kenny put it to me, and it's so true. And, you know, as a little <laughs> teaser, I actually, uh, a, a fan of the show, parentheses, a friend of mine, <laughs> um, <laughs> said that we should talk about the recent New York Times article linking, discussing Georgia Maloney, the new sort of neo-fascist president of Italy and her love for Tolkien and the Hobbit. And uh, trust us, we will be doing that. So stay tuned for the for upcoming episodes about the the new right and its obsession with Tolkien. Yes, for sure. You know, there's a there's something to be said that it's 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 not it's not often that um, you know you start a couple of guys start a podcast about something that's uh, you know relatively niche, right? Quite, I'd and, say quite niche. And and you have you know multiple news stories popping up since we started it that are directly related. You know, you have uh, the the new like there's the. Maloney in particular loving Tolkien. There's also, you know, uh, the tech bros and Blake Masters and Peter Thiel loving Tolkien. Yeah. Um, things that are very relevant in the news. So, so you know, uh, yeah, I would say, of course, we, we record these episodes with, with a bit of a lead. So, uh, you know, you can expect the, the Georgia Maloney episode uh, at some point within the next couple months. For sure. Yeah, um, yeah. A little peek behind the curtain. These episodes are not recorded very close to when they come out. Yes, Sam and I are both very busy, so we record when we can. Anyway, it's been, as always, a pleasure talking to you, Sam. I can't wait to talk about the second half of this book. Oh, it's going to be incredible. I'll talk to you next time, Sam. See ya. Yeah, bye. Hosted by Sam Lieberman and Kenny Tellerico. Our cover art is by Claire Harpel. Our theme music is by Kenny Tellerico. Any materials or writings discussed in this episode are linked below in the show notes. <laughs>